What's going on, everyone? This is Jackson Nikolai from No Script Podcast, and I just wanted to take a second at the beginning of this episode to let you know that the audio in this one will sound a little bit differently. I was forced to record on my computer microphone for this episode, and the audio quality is going to be a little bit less than what you're used to coming from my microphone. The conversation was still great. We wanted to still keep it. We really enjoyed talking about this play, but uh, just so you know, audio is going to sound different. We'll never sound like this again, knock on wood. So, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. <laughs> American <laughs> Buffalo, don't yeah. be like Teach. <laughs> Good evening or day or whatever it is, everybody. This is No Script, the podcast, a unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you all for tuning back in. Uh, We are talking, we are clipping along in some of our, our favorite plays as we go through this. And this week we're talking American Buffalo, which is a play by David Mamet. Uh, I'm just going to give you a brief context of the play itself, and then I'll kick it over to Jacob to do the synopsis. But uh, this play was uh, written in 1975, written by David Mamet for the Goodman Theater in Chicago, or at least that's where it was produced for the first time. Uh, it, it did uh, two two runs in Chicago with slightly different cast, but uh, kind of a cool tidbit was the uh, part of the original cast was William H. Macy playing the younger role in this. So that's that's kind of cool. And uh, then it went on to to play in New York at a at a showcase at St. Clement's uh, 1976. And then the following year, it had its Broadway debut in uh, 1977 at the Ethel Barrymore Theater. And amongst the cast was Robert Duvall, John Savage, and Kenneth McMillan. It uh, then proceeded and went on about, uh, what is that, about 20, 19 years later, it be, it was a film. And in that film, I'm sure many of you have seen the film, uh, Dustin Hoffman played one of the title characters. So this is a, uh, a play with some longevity from one of uh, American theater's best playwrights. Yeah, an easy search will find professional theaters, community theaters all over the country have done recent productions of it in some way. It's very popular. One of Mammoth's more popular scripts, probably. The story is, it's it's a three-character show, and it all takes place at Don's Junk Shop. So it's a big, something like we might think of as a thrift store or an antique shop. Um, it's sort of a pretty mammoth like setting for a show like this, <laughs> uh, surrounded by all this kind of decaying crap, uh, that has value to somebody, but, um, Don just sells it. And so the, the story is Don is the owner of the junk shop. He has, uh, kind of a gopher, a kid that he's taken under his wing that he is mentoring named Bobby. And Bobby and Don, at the beginning of the play, are discussing a heist that they're going to pull. They are going to steal some rare coins from a gentleman that lives nearby. This gentleman came in and purchased a rare coin from Don's junk shop. And so because of that, Don presumes that 
he has a whole stash of them somewhere. It's one of the maybe breaks in logic that some of the characters have throughout the show. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But that's what Don thinks, that he's probably got a bunch of rare coins stashed somewhere. So he and Bobby are going to break in. Actually, he's going to send Bobby to break in and steal the coins. And then Don's got somebody who's just going to resell them too right quick. So they're planning that heist when Teach comes in. Um, we'll talk some, I think, about what Teach's deal is. He's a pretty uh, boisterous, um, uh, active character, and he comes in with a lot of energy right away and basically steals the heist from Bobby. He boots yeah. Bobby out of being able to do it um, and decides that he's going to do it himself with Don. That's kind of the first act is Teach trying to convince Don to let him do it instead of Bobby. And then the second act is that in that same night when they're going to go in and do it and hijinks occur that end up kind of foiling the whole plan. Uh, Bobby gets involved again then in the second act sort of trying to get back in on the heist and it kind of goes round and around like that. Um, that That's really the whole scope of the play. So not, not really a huge or very involved plot. There's not, I mean, you know, if you charted the plot points through, there's just not that many, yeah. uh, there's not that many things that actually happen in terms of plot. There's a lot that happens between the characters. So it's, uh, it's, it's very dialogue heavy. There's a lot of physical action, but not a lot of scenes. Yeah, no, this is a very language heavy play and it's all written in a in someone's vernacular, it's not the you know readily accessible vernacular of some folks, but it takes a little bit. It's a, almost a Shakespeare effect where you read it for you know thirty pages and you finally get the rhythm of of their speech patterns, and it it doesn't make sense that you can read what they're saying, but somehow yeah, it's it, it's it, it's mammoth speak. I think is what some, some people yeah. call it. It's his particular style of writing. It's typically very fast and very mm -hmm. short. I mean, you know, Jackson and I are looking at the pages of our script, and there's like you know, the characters will say like three or four word lines yeah, and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over and over and over again. It's very jargon heavy, very, um, the characters intuit a lot. David Mamet relies on the truth of conversation, which is that typically you and the person you're talking with know what you're talking about. So you don't really say the subject of your conversation very much. So when, especially reading, I think it might play a little more clear than it reads, but especially reading, there's a lot you've got to kind of figure out what exactly they're speaking about and how the nouns that they're using relate to the actual subjects of the conversation. Like uh, a popular one in this play is the thing. They use yeah. the thing as kind of the primary noun for anything they're talking about. <laughs> just just anything. Just any object. It could be an object near them. It could be the heist itself. It doesn't yep. matter. It's the thing. And they say the thing, you know, just tons throughout the course of the play. So that's that, it, you know, it, especially when it when Mamet made his jump to writing some for TV, I know that people kind of started to catch on and poke a little fun at it. And, you know, he's a very popular author, a very awarded author. So he's got a lot of copycats um, trying yeah. to kind of capture that that quintessential mammoth, quick-paced dialogue, short lines, back and forth. Yeah, definitely. And you get much less um, pausing in here. You do have still still stage directions directing you when to pause, but there are so few and far between. This play is about keeping it sharp. Uh, you, you're, you're bouncing ideas back and forth, back and forth, and almost like stream of consciousness sharing. I like what you had to say. Like When you're in a conversation with someone, you have your own agreed-upon set of things that you set of things that you 
that you know you're talking about. You don't have to clarify each time, and that's that's clearly <laughs> what it, what is going on here, especially with Don and Teach. Like they have a good chunk of this is is them just kind of riffing off each other and going back and forth. Most <laughs> most of the time, Teach is like this very abrasive character. We should maybe talk about let's talk about Teach first because he dominates quite a bit of this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he does. He's sort of the driving force of this yeah. play, which is interesting because he really has almost nothing to do with what is supposed to be happening. The, the right. heist is not his. It's not his plan. <laughs> he hasn't been the one scoping it out. So the actual action of what should be happening, the heist, Teach is not the driver of at all, at least at the beginning, but in his sort of characteristic teach way you know you feel like you know him after reading this play it's like oh teach well that's what he does he right. comes in and hijacks other people's plans and then becomes the leader <laughs> and is yeah. the one making the plans driving the pace of the conversation you know everything that they talk about is what teach wants to talk about and if if they're on a conversation subject that teach doesn't want to be on he just changes it and they talk about something else <laughs> Yep. Even when he's like getting kind of agitated and angry about something and Don tries to like change the focus back, it always works its way back around to what Teach wants to talk about. He comes in, he comes in angry. The first scene we see, he's angry at a perceived slight that I think these other women that they are all friends somewhat with didn't buy him food. And instead, well, like, <laughs> I, 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 I love this as the first scene for Teach. It's maybe my favorite moment of teaching the play. I'm not especially fond of him throughout the rest of the play. I mean, I'm not sure you're supposed to be. He's kind of abrasive and rude. But that <laughs> scene, I think, is hilarious. He walks <laughs> yeah. into the junk shop. And people have kind of been asking. So the one thing that I forgot to mention about the plot that's important is that uh, prior to the action of the play, there has been a poker game. And at the poker yes. game, Don and, and Teach were playing, and then there was at least two other players, maybe more, but we know at least two others, Fletcher and Ruthie. Fletcher won big. He won the most money. They, uh, Don and Bobby especially respect his poker playing skills. He's the guy who knows what he's doing, so he wins the most money. Ruthie also wins a bunch of money. So uh, then you go to the next day. Don and Bobby are in the junk shop. They're planning the heist. They're talking about, oh, what happened in the game last night? They mentioned that Teach didn't win, and that's going to probably put him in a bad mood. And then Teach comes in, and he's in a bad mood. <laughs> Shockingly. But he's Shockingly. not in a bad mood about the poker game. He's upset because he has just come from the diner, the local diner it must just be right close because bobby goes back and forth a couple times and the diner i think it's called the riverside um and at the river he they call it the riv so at the riv teach has sat down with root grace uh gracie and or no grace and ruthie am i yep, is that right? you got grace, that right grace and ruthie he tells us that he sat down at their table and he took a little bit of toast off of ruthie or grace's plate which, which whatever one of the two and they kind of made a joke about it they said oh well help yourself yeah. And this just infuriates Teach, who feels like he buys people food all the time, he's generous, he is just always willing to spend money on his friends, and you don't know yeah, you, you just don't how know. truthful that is. <laughs> I believe that that is his perception of the events, that is true. I, yeah, whether that's actually what you know, whether he's really that generous, whether they really slighted him that much, you don't know. But he is deeply hurt by this. He, I mean, he just mopes and mopes about how they just must not care about him and how they're really ungrateful. He yeah. does all this stuff for them. And I just, it's such a hilarious way to enter, totally changing the subject, totally <laughs> yeah. diverting the whole energy of the scene to what he wants it to be about. I mean, the minute Teach walks in, it's all about him. 
And it's about right. this ridiculous slight that he <laughs> thinks he received from one of his dear friends. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it kind of ties a little bit into the scene right before. So Don is like talking to Bobby and he's trying to communicate to him uh, this this uh, loyalty that he's talking about. So he's, he's like trying to say like there's lots of things you'll do in the world and, it, and what you do to different people matters based on what they how they treat you. And like the next moment, Teach walks in with this tirade about how people are treating him and his his role in in treating other people within their friendship groups. And uh, yeah, it's just like this crazy, crazy abrasive scene. And all and then then everything shifts. Like it's no longer about Bobby and Don. Now it's like let's let's placate Teach. Bobby, go get <laughs> go get him some coffee. You want something to eat? I'll get you something to eat. And uh, yeah, he's like you know. I, I don't. I don't know that you know. He's such a strong personality. It's hard to say. Everybody knows a teach. I don't know that right. that's true. But I think that a lot of friend groups have that person in their friend group that it's kind of centered around. You know, you maybe will have a group of friends that you wouldn't really be friends with a lot of them, except that this other friend is friends with them. So there's right. that you have. I think I feel like at least I have those relationships in my life where I know these other people, but really a lot of that group of friendships is centered around this one person. And for better or for worse, that does seem to be the case with that with teach with whoever he's around. Um, question for you, Jackson. What do you think Teach does? Yeah. I mean, what, do you I mean, think what does he do in his done? life? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's just this one day that you see. There's really, it's just two scenes. The morning when they plan the heist and the evening when the heist goes wrong. Shockingly. Yeah. So it, yeah. those are the only scenes. So, I mean, what is the rest of Teach's life like? I mean, can we infer some things? You know, it's a great question. Almost everyone else, it's pretty clear. You know, Bobby seems to be kind of working for Don uh, occasionally. Yeah, I, th I, I think that Bobby is a recovering drug addict. And yeah, Don either... has taken him under his wing and is paying him to do stuff for him to try yeah. to put him back up on his feet. I don't know exactly how their relationship came about, but I, I agree. I feel like both of their lives are pretty clear. Don mm -hmm. is a less than honest junk shop salesman and yep. owner. And Bobby is a recovering drug addict, I think, that is finding a second chance with this guy, Don, who's given yep. him some work. And then the other satellite characters as well. Uh, I mean, Gracie or Grace and Ruthie uh, seems seem to work at the diner in some capacity. At least they're always there. Um, so we could infer that. And then even Fletcher, this other character that uh, is talked about quite a lot in the play, seems to work for Don occasionally. Like Don will leave the shop to him occasionally. As far as we can tell, he doesn't do that for Teach. And um, Right, this... yeah. You don't get the sense that Don would trust Teach with the shop. Yeah. I and, and and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Um, there's the interesting bit that uh, to, I, I, I think, again, this play is very vague in some of it. You, you're, you get to infer a lot, which is really great for different houses to be able to do their own versions of these things, but I think he pawns his watch to get a gun. So he is... I, I agree. That's one of the things I thought I thought was going on, too. Yeah. So And, and actually, the movie... I, I watched a couple scenes from the movie in preparation for this because the Mammoth Speak 
loses a little bit in the reading. So I wanted to kind of see it played a little. Um, yeah. And Dustin Hoffman plays that up a lot. When he is handling the gun, he really doesn't know what he's doing. Sure. So that, yeah. that I think would play, and that's just one actor's interpretation, and it doesn't really apply to the dramatic literature of the script. But But I think at least one major actor would agree with you that this gun is new to teach his life, and we know that he hawked his watch recently. Yeah. So I think... I think we're at least meant to infer, and and in part due to his desperation to get this job, I I think we're at least meant to infer that he's between things at the moment. He doesn't seem to have, um, at least that's what I'm in, that's that's my interpretation of it. He doesn't seem to have something that is uh, dominating his time right now. He comes in, he's he kind of talks about how off his sleep cycle is, and he didn't sleep at all last night, and he comes in yeah. in the morning. What so, is that about? So yeah. they play the poker game the night before. Then the next morning is when Teach comes in, and then at the end of that scene, when they've decided, okay, we're going to do the heist, we'll meet late tonight, Don finds out that Teach hasn't slept since the poker game the night before. Yeah. So he's like, well, you should go take a nap, get ready for the heist. And Teach kind of blows that off. And then later that night, you find out that he didn't actually take a nap. So, yeah. I mean, he's been awake for 24 hours at least. Right. Where, I mean, how does that play in? Or is some of Teach's erratic, sort of disconnected, odd behavior have to do with this this um you know the this messy life situation that i think we agree he finds himself in he's i th- i think probably out of work or maybe doesn't really ever have much work that's sort of left up to question but i would agree that i think at least right now he seems so desperate for the money and so desperate I, not even just for the money but for something to do that he can be involved in that interests him and that he's, you know, he's not sleeping. He has to sell his watch for the money for a gun. So that there are some things I think that lend itself to that. So I don't know. How does something like that play into his behavior? Uh, I think you you kind of see him descend a little bit, especially towards the end of the play. Um, there, there's something there's something I'm saving. I want to I want to get there eventually, but it, it ties into this. You you see him kind of. Uh, he has this scene, especially towards the end, where he goes and he like just snaps. He breaks the whole shop. He like has this tirade about huge, huge, like everything is wrong in the world and friendship means nothing and loyalty means nothing. And it's, it's, it's kind of out of the blue, but, but still like it, it forces Don to come after him and kind of calm him down. Right. I, I, that, that for me, I think is a crucial moment for teach as well. So what has happened is Bobby, um, who is he's been casing the guy that they're going to steal from in the first act of the play. And he tells Don that he sees the guy go out of town. And so that's yeah. what they based this whole heist on, is that the guy's out of town so he can break into his house tonight, steal it, hawk the coins, and by the time he gets back, we'll, there'll be no evidence that we ever had the coins. I mean, he'll eventually know that he got robbed, but there's no evidence of us. Then, later that night, when the heist is actually going to go on, Bobby's being kind of weird. He comes back a few times. He's trying to sell Don this coin that he supposedly got from this guy. He's being very vague about it. Yep. And he admits uh, under duress, so <laughs> bear that in mind. He is, he is being attacked. But he admits yep. that he did not actually see the guy leave, That that he was lying, 
um, I think we're meant to assume because he wanted to um, he wanted to do something right for Donnie. Um, so he admits that he didn't actually see him go. So that means the heist is off and that they could have busted into this guy's house and been caught. Yeah. And Teach loses it. The stage direction is Teach picks up the dead pit, the dead pig sticker and starts trashing the junk shop. So this is a, a something in the d- junk shop, the dead pig. It's supposed to spread apart dead pig's legs. They only mentioned it like once earlier. It's, it's yeah. a, a semi-significant prop. But he uses it, and he just trashes the junk shop, and he goes crazy, and, and he t- he says things, you know, like he how he's going out every day. There's nothing out there. Everybody has left him. He, he just sort of wallows, and, and for me... I think that that's a good peek into how desperate he is for this. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the scene that that scene is such a crux of so many things, but you you see Don turn on him too in that scene and all, and all the way up until now he has been running Don pretty much. <laughs> um Don is kind of I think he's the old the older of the people in the group. Uh, I think he's 40 as compared to um well, we don't we don't really get to know what teaches, but uh what age he is, and but I assume you see he's different much productions do different things with that. Sometimes they appear to be sort of the same age, like the, mm-hmm. the movie with Dustin Hoffman, they're similar ages. But uh, you see productions too where Don's a much older guy and Teach is a younger guy, which is why Don isn't the one to break in. I actually yep. think Don being kind of an older heavyweight guy makes some sense because otherwise, I mean, why wouldn't he just do it himself? That he, he may need a younger guy. He yep. goes for Bobby first, who's very young. Um, but then, you know, Teach wiggles his way in. So I, I think that there's some justification, I think you're right, for Don being the older guy who maybe isn't quite as physical. Yep. And he finally uh, imposingly stops him. He hits him. He's backing him up. He's, he seems to have so, enough power over Teach, physical power over Teach, to physically stop him in this scene. And, and it's the revelation from Bobby that winds up stopping Don from further attacking Teach. And so you see... You see T- all Teach's machinations break down in this one scene. He spent one whole day finally trying to put together he, he had no he had nothing this morning. <laughs> you know, he walked in having lost hundreds maybe of dollars last night in a poker game and walked in this morning with no money, found like talked his way into a job by discrediting someone else and that other that person that he discredited was false in his information about the underpinnings of the whole heist that he wasted his whole day on and now sold his watch for a gun. So <laughs> I think, I think seeing that unraveling of teach is, is would be really good to see on stage, but is very indicative of his situation as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because teach sort of plays himself as this, master criminal you know that's kind of the sense you (laughs) get of him describing himself Mm -hmm. but i also think simultaneously it's clear that nobody has any idea what they're doing yeah they have absolutely no idea how to rob a house yeah at several stages they each like question each other and so it comes around so so Kind of the big, the the central core, the reason why uh, Don finds this place is this guy comes into the store, right? And he's he's looking around uh, at the various, uh, you know, junk and thrift things there. And he comes up to the counter and he spies a buffalo nickel in the case and he asks how much it is. 
and um, and uh, teach teach won't tell him at first. Or I'm sorry, Don won't tell him at first. Don says, "What do you think it is?" And he says, "Well, never mind. I'll go off and I'll go around." And then he comes back and he says, "He'll give the customer says he'll give him fifty dollars for this buffalo nickel." And Don was gonna ask for like two pence, I think he says. So, um, yeah, like just nothing, paltry sum, yeah. And so, so he says, "Yeah, no way." He thinks he's hit on something gold here. And the guy says he won't go higher than eighty. They barter down to ninety, and uh, and he leaves. Well, he thinks that he has been completely duped in this scenario. Like he thinks that this coin is worth like six times that amount. Right. And so he, Don <laughs> buys this book about coins, yeah, so that he can learn a little bit about the thing he's trying to steal. He has no idea no how idea. much money is in the house. Probably, you know, even if he had managed to rip off the guy's coin collection, I don't think we're talking like huge sums of money. Yeah. And but he, yeah. but the truth is that he doesn't know. And there's this hilarious interchange where Teach has basically stolen the coin book and yeah. has said, "Well, you got to know what you're talking about, man. Otherwise, why are you pulling the job?" And he starts to quiz Don on what <laughs> different coins are worth. And Don doesn't know. And so finally, Don says, "Oh, are you going to keep that so you can read up on the coins?" And Teach is like, "Ah, I don't really care." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna sit here and read this book for. What am I gonna do? Sit here and read this book for hours? <laughs> it's like you just told Don that it's so important. To yeah, know. and the, you... <laughs> and then it comes back around too because Don winds up quizzing uh, Teach about like how would you break in, and basically Teach's idea is just to break a window. And... Yeah, oh, he just like refuses to give him an idea for a while. He's like, "Oh, yeah. a window will be open." Right. And Don's like, "Well, what if there isn't a window open?" And Teach is like, "There probably will be." Yeah. But what if there isn't? I'll figure it out. And that's <laughs> just of, the whole plan. One of my favorite ones is he's talking about, so Don brings up like, and what if you get in there and you think there's a safe or, and you find that there's a safe in yes. there. Yes. Oh, this is so funny. <laughs> and he's like, well, it's, if there's a safe, I'll just look around for where he has it written down. And then <laughs> and, Don says, well, what, I mean, what if he didn't write it down? And teach just goes, ah, he wrote it down. It's human nature to write things down. It's like a three-page interchange about how he, this guy definitely wrote down the combination. Yep. And Don's like, well, what? I mean, what if he didn't? Why would he? Yeah. He's like, no, 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 I promise. He's definitely got it written down. Yeah. And his, like, crowning piece of information is he gets Don to say that he would put the, he said, where would you write down something that you would want to keep? And he said, in my wallet. And he's like, exactly. And he thinks he's one. But well, if the guy has left on vacation, exactly, that's he exactly has his wallet right. with him. It's the audience where you're like, the guy doesn't have his wallet <laughs> sitting on the desk. He's got it with him. Yeah, this helps you not at all. If they're just, you, get, you, you just are sure that if, even if they manage to, to decide to actually do it, that the heist would fail epically. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, you wonder, I mean, I think it's clear that Teach doesn't do this kind of stuff all the time. You know, I don't think Teach is a career thief. He might be a career criminal in other ways. You can kind of see Teach being like sort of a con man. Like he's the kind of guy that might try to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> right. Yep. But I don't think he's a career thief. He doesn't break into people's houses for a living because it's clear that he has no idea how to do it. So the fact that he's so – first of all, he's so dead convinced, at least in front of Don, that Don that he's the right person for the job. That Bobby is not – Bobby's this kid. 
you know, you can't trust him. Something might go wrong. You need a real professional in there. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, what was the line? Uh, he says like, oh, you, you know, if this thing goes badly, you're gonna regret that you didn't go for the best. Implying like that he's, you know, the best option in this. Right. And you're like, why would that be true? I mean, what knowledge do you have that no one else has? And he doesn't really seem to have any. So, it, you know, one of the core questions, I think, if you were going to play teach, you'd have to tr- do some work to figure out what is his investment in this. Is it just the money? I don't think so, because truth be told... Teach doesn't really seem that interested in how much money. They don't really ever discuss how much like actual cash they intend to get out of this deal. They usually just say, oh, it'll be a lot of money. Right. And, and then they the, the kind other of have a, a like, mini negotiation gonna... about percentages. But it basically yeah. just ends with Teach saying like, oh, we can negotiate the percentages if you want. I don't really care. Yeah. And so, I mean, he doesn't really seem invested in what monetarily he's going to earn. So what? What is it that makes him so dead committed to this, even to the point where late in the play, when it's clear it's probably not going to happen, he's still trying to make it happen? Yeah, there. I think so. There's 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 two things that I think ties really close to that. There's a line, and I'm not going to be able to find it. I just page through the script real quick, but there's a line where he describes the American dream, um, which is I think he boils it down to basically being able to pursue pursue uh it's not happiness um but it's like that to pursue it's, happiness it's, it's, it's in whatever freedom. way it's freedom he has a he has a, i remember yeah, exactly that's, what you're talking that's about. what it is he yeah. says like you know sort of the the core of america is your ability to do whatever you decide to do to make a profit yes that's, that's like the founding whatever you got to do to make a buck you get to do it that's the core of america is what is kind of the one of the things he says yep so he's kind of I, – I like where we wound up with he's kind of down and out right now and he's needing to feel that empowerment. I think that is that is the reason why he grabs onto this so hard is if he is he is not finding a way to bring in uh, success in any way. So he, he has this thing come across. He thinks he sees a way that he envisions it happening for him. And the shot, the shot is fleeting too. Like they call – the other thing that they call it other than the thing is the shot. And uh, very reminiscent of not going to throw away my shot. And this is like the moment in time that they have it open. And uh, as the as the night goes on and more and more goes wrong, he starts saying, like, we can't delay this. Too many people know it's going to get out. This is a finite window of opportunity for us to grab this. And if we don't grab it now, it'll be gone. And so the details are allowed to be a little bit hazy in that scenario because it's just important to to seize this chance while he has has the shot. Yeah, I think that you're 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 get, you're right on. I think that teach, for teach this is like a one chance to do something. And it 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 feels like he is the kind of person who has expected because of his own inflated sense of self, his life to be better than it actually is. You know, I I think, you know, Jackson and I are really with a lot of this sort of taking guesses of what we got out of it because so much of yeah. what's in Mammoth scripts in general in this script is left up to the ether. 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, they're very, um, kind of focused on the action at hand. And so there's not a lot about the characters' backstories that you really learn. So th- a lot of this is sort of our best guesswork. And my best guesswork would say that Teach is, it feels like nothing has gone his way and that he, in life and that he, and that he's been cheated out of that. Yeah. You know, his first scene, we've talked about this already. His first scene is, I'm so generous, but I get disrespected anyway. And so he doesn't, you know, and and so one of the other things that's important about the heist is that they spend a little bit of time talking about the guy they're going to steal from and how he's this rich business guy. He's got this very attractive, they think wife, but they know that it might not be his wife, maybe just living with her, this very attractive woman. And Teach it seems kind of upset about that. Like, oh, why would he get her? You know, screw them. Those are the kind of guys I really like to screw over. So there's some sense, too, of that um, Teach wants to do it just, just for the purpose of hurting someone like this. And not even, it's not even so much like a vindictive, like he's so violent and mean, but that he feels a deep hurt that someone like that isn't him. That he has is not yeah. in those positions that you know he should be. Everybody around him is a cheat. You know, one of the big reveals later on in the play is that Fletcher, this great great card player, is actually a cheater, and that really hurts Don to hear. But Teach is the kind of guy that picked up on that early on, and he kind of gets that about the world. The world is cheating him, and he's missed out. So something like this is his, maybe his chance to punch back. Yep, I think you're right on with that. So many of his his qualms have to do with not feeling like he is uh, perceived as worthy by others, or that other he defers responsibility for things happening to other people. The the, the cheating thing comes up all the time in this, and I, I I wanted to ask. That's that's one of the things that I really want to drill down on for a little bit here is the relationship between teach. Don and this other character, Fletcher. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, I'll, I'll kind of sum it up just a little bit first, and then I'll ask the question. But Don decides, uh, as 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 Teach worms his way into this job, that he wants to bring this other guy, Fletcher, on. And Fletcher is spoken of only very highly by Don. Uh, Don thinks he's a guy who knows how to get stuff done, and he knows he's a great card player, and he knows how to make a deal. He says if you dropped him off with a nickel in a town, he'd own the town by midnight. And uh, he, so he has a very high opinion of him. He's the, he's the one he lets run his store when he's gone and stuff like that. So he brings on Fletcher. And Teach uh, kind of perceives that as, it, at the very least, a defraying, a fraying of resources, right? <laughs> In the end, you're splitting it three ways instead of two. But I think he sees it as a little bit more than that. So do you, this is, this is, this is my big question. Do you think that uh, Teach really thinks... Fletcher cheated or is he just like trying to make it up? Yeah, I go back and forth on that too. I think first of all, my the simple answer is I don't know that there's any re really any real reason to lie about it in the moment. I mean, potentially uh, he's trying to convince Don that they don't need Fletcher um, and they should just do the heist without him. So there's some that like maybe he's just trying to undermine Fletcher's character. But at the core of it, that sounds like, at least at least in the realm of the kinds of things that Teach says, it sounds like a real story. 
not everything that Teach says comes off as very genuine. He's a, you know, if, if he were the narrator of the play, he would be an unreliable narrator. You're just, he's an unreliable narrator of his own life and the yeah. lives of the people around him. So you, you know that about Teach, no matter what he says about somebody, there's a chance that he's making it up. But given all the things he says about people throughout the whole of the play, this is one of the few things that has a ring of truth to it. First of all, because it doesn't, at least to me, seem to give him an obvious advantage in the moment. He seems to mostly just be saying it to hurt Don, to mm-hmm. to uh, make him aware of the flaws in one of his heroes. And it, it the way that he tells it is without embellishment. You know, he says, look, Don, Fletcher cheats. Last night he cheated. You remember when you lost those, when you lost that big hand to him? Do you remember how he spilled his drink and we all looked away for a second and then suddenly he had this bet, this great hand? I mean, that, that doesn't really sound to me like it has a lot of room for embellishment in it. That sounds like a very clear thing. And the other thing that makes me think that it, that he's not lying is that Don seems to kind of know, you know, Don responds like, oh, that can't be true. You're hurting me. This is poison. But the other thing you get a sense of is that somebody's just slapping Don with a reality he probably already knows. And it it hurts him to have someone else say it, that, that someone else in his life is a cheat. So, I I mean, I th- I think he's telling the truth. It's <laughs> With Teach, it's always possible that he's lying to you. But right. I, I don't know that he is in that moment. And it, for some reason, it's a pretty heartbreaking scene. Dawn puts a lot of stock in Fletcher. And Teach sort of vindictively pulls it away from him by revealing this thing that he knew. Yeah, I think I agree. There's, there's a little bit other kind of uh, peripheral stuff going on in the first scene. Bobby brings up that uh, uh, Fletcher got a a pig iron off of Ruthie and uh, the way Don tells it, he was pretty sure it was like a business transaction or something. And he almost willfully turns it aside as nothing, but then it's brought up again by- That's a good uh, point. I had not thought about that, but that's exactly right. Yeah. It's brought up again by Teach. And he says that, you know, that he uh, conned Ruth, Ruthie out of that pig iron and it's brought up again and, te- and Don is a little less inclined to contradict Teach. Um, so I think, and in that earlier scene uh, from, from the beginning, Teach is looking for Fletcher. And like he is, he comes into the shop and he's asking where he is. He's wondering when he gets there. He says, well, well that makes sense. He never shows up at, at a given time. So he's, I, th- I think it tracks that he all, like his initial thing that day was going to go confront Fletcher about the cheating because he's looking that, at him. See, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about, I had kind of forgotten that he's really there to find Fletcher. I wonder, mm-hmm. yeah, I want, is he, that, you think that's what he's doing? That so I think. Makes some I, sense. There's one more thing that I just want to throw out there. Okay. Do you think he broke Fletcher's jaw? I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, okay, so let's let's establish some context so and yeah. this might this is a good one for folks who are listening. Um, to chime in on too in the comments. Yes. Uh, you might have your own opinion. So 
Fletcher does not show up for the heist late at night. That's one of the first things that goes wrong. And they don't know why until Bobby comes back and says, I've just come from the Riv. Grace and Ruthie says that say that Fletcher got mugged and that he broke his jaw and he's in the hospital. And the guys don't really believe Bobby at first. In fact, they're kind of on a paranoid kick where they're starting to think that maybe Bobby ripped the guy off himself uh, or maybe he's been lying the whole time. So they end up pretty brutally interrogating him, even to the point where Teach hits him with like a big thing. He gets all bloody and concussed. So they're, you know, they're torturing him. They're beating him for the information. And Don is really hurt by it, of course, because he's a lot of affection for him. But that's where they're at. Um, and, but it, it turns out that Bobby was telling the truth about that. Uh, he gets a, Don gets a call from one of the girls who tells him the name of the hospital and calls the hospital. And yes, Fletcher is there and he has broken his jaw, but we do not know what exactly happened. Bobby claims that Fletcher got mugged. Nobody really seems to have seen that happen. So we don't really have any backup except somebody said, somebody said, that's what happened. Yep. And it's also, it's also, uh, the, the other clue is that it's his jaw that's broken, which makes him unable to talk. Yep. Don wants to talk to him over the phone and the nurse tells him, look, his jaw's broken. You're not going to be able to speak to him. So if I were teach and I did not want Fletcher involved, I might stage a mugging and then make sure that the thing that I broke was the thing that would prevent him from telling on me for a while. So uh, there's some setup for maybe... Now, um, let's say at first up that that is not implied in the play by any of right. the characters. So yep. this is a this is a extra textual thought about what may have happened to Fletcher. If you were Teach, of course, you'd have to decide whether you actually did that or not in your playing of Teach. But none of the characters even suggest that that's what happened. This is us thinking out loud about... The fact that yeah. Teach is kind of a liar, that he clearly does not want Fletcher involved, and that there are some oddities about what happened to Fletcher. So, Jackson, what what would some be, what would be some of the arguments for Teach did not attack Fletcher? Sure, uh, I think right right away the, the thing that leads me away from it is as soon as it comes out that. Uh, Fletcher is in the hospital. He is, he is all sorts of messy in that scene. Like he is not, you, you, he's not written as like flustered trying to cover. Um, he is, he is, he is grilling Bobby. <laughs> he, it, he seems panicked even. Like he, he, he perceives that Bobby has already taken the place and maybe returned, trying to sell back a nickel to them from the, from the, the the house of this person they were going to rob. And then when, when it's, uh, when it's comes out that Fletcher is in the hospital, he doesn't like right away say, you know, let's get out. Of, let's, let's get out here and do the job now or anything. He gets there eventually, but there's some talk about like, Oh yeah, we'll visit him tomorrow. Like it's, it's, it's right. He's kind I, of, I, I'd be interested to go back and look, I forgot to check. I don't remember if teach ever agrees to visit him tomorrow. I do yeah. believe that he never suggests that they should. That's other characters saying, oh, we should go see Fletcher tomorrow, see how he's doing. I don't know that Teach is really ever involved in those conversations. But right. I, I think you're right. The, the the fact that he's interrogating Bobby and seems to be pretty intent on interrogating Bobby to get him to reveal where Fletcher is, 
that may indicate that he's really doesn't know, honestly, um, and that he think truly thinks Bobby's lying. So I, I, I think if that's the way you went playing Teach, there's a lot that that I mean, that's a fair way to go. You could yeah. really do this whole play without having that question. Did Teach do it? You might just assume. But I think that there is, based on Teach's character and the sort of desperation you feel from him that Jackson and I have talked about, there's some of this subtextual unease. You know, he 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 clearly is capable of violence. He clubs Bobby over the head with a lamp. He trashes the junk shop. So there's some sense that he's at least capable of doing this. I think there's one other thing that really leaned me toward it and it took me three times to catch it. But there's quite a bit of to do about uh, Bobby. Uh, Don calls Bobby's bluff, basically. They want to find out if Fletcher's in the hospital. And so they say, okay, what hospital? And he says, Masonic. And so Don picks up the phone, he calls the hospital, and Fletcher's not there. And so and Bobby says, well, maybe I heard him wrong. I didn't, it's <laughs> what winds up being pretty much true is that he just didn't have the right hospital. <laughs> And eventually Ruthie calls and they call the correct hospital and Fletcher is indeed in that hospital with a broken jaw. So all of Bobby's story seems to match up at that point. The first person who mentions Masonic is Teach. And interesting. Yeah. Like he says, so, oh, great. So now Fletcher's holed up in, in, in Masonic and now what are we going to do? And that is the seed that then, that then uh, Bobby or Bob, uh, latches onto and says that it's so, Masonic. So, so let's think through, let's assume for a second that Teej did attack Fletcher to keep him away from the robbery. Yeah. There's a lot, I mean, you'd have to really imagine that Teach is much more desperate than you think he is to do this robbery and mm-hmm. either really doesn't like Fletcher. I mean, you think that that might be true. Teach seems to have some sort of high moral standards for the characters around him, even though he doesn't really always meet those standards. He really expects a lot. So just the, just purely off the bat, the fact that Fletcher cheats at poker might make Teach almost unwilling to be involved in something with Fletcher. Yeah. Just based on who Teach is. So there's some of that. So let's assume that he actually does that. Then Bobby shows up, and what is Teach's motivation for grilling and attacking Bobby, trying to interrogate him about where Fletcher is? Is it just to communicate, or I'm sorry, to confuse the situation? Or you know, because you think, well, wouldn't it really just be better for Teach if it just got out? Oh, Fletcher got mugged. He's at such and such a hospital. Great, he can't come. We better go. I think. I think he was hoping that it wouldn't come out at all, that Fletcher wouldn't even show up. And thus would that would be enough that would prove it. And I, I mean, I doubt that he would be it would have been good enough to take it. Let's 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 jump into the realm that he did hit that he did break Fletcher's jaw. I doubt that he would have t- taken him to the hospital afterwards. He probably left him wherever he mugged him and it's just gotten around. So now Bob is coming back with this information. Right. And. Fletcher, or not Fletcher, uh, Teach needs to stop it. Like, this is complicating things. He sees Don getting nervous. Don, this has been the linchpin for Don all along. Don needs Fletcher there. Like, even in the midst of every of the height of Teach convincing Don to let him do the job, 
Don was nervous and called Fletcher. So to get Fletcher completely out of the equation, Teach hits him and just wants to get the job done without Fletcher in the equation at all and then deal with the ramifications later. But then Bob keeps coming back. So Teach kind of plays this really aggressive role, guides him into making mistakes so that he can uh, so that he can push the issue further and wind up knocking Bobby out and and putting a lot of blame on him. Yeah, and it, there seems to, I mean, some of it you can maybe chalk up to the fact that Teach is not really especially good at this, this sort of deceiving, robbing world. He just, yeah. he, he's not, you know, he he's smart in like the, I'm kind of a street man, con man, smart, but he doesn't always think things through. So it, just because the plan would not have worked doesn't really mean that Teach didn't do it. But it does seem, the only, you know, my hesitation in it is just that it, it seems sort of odd that he, you know, what what exactly is he trying to pass off on Bobby? That, oh, Bobby, you know, is actually lying about Fletcher having his jaw broke and Fletcher is just still in the wind somewhere and might show up so we should wait for him? Right. Or uh, Bobby, I mean, you know, they, there's also this secondary level to the interrogation where they are sort of paranoid that Bobby has already stolen the coin back or, you know, is going to try to do the job anyway or or something like that. So there's this other worry that they have and how does that play into the interrogation? So I I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I had the same thought as you that, wow, this is... <laughs> There's a lot of coincidences that made Fletcher not able to show up tonight. One of them is that he can't speak about the attack that happened to him. <laughs> so yep. admittedly, all of that is very suspicious. I I don't know that I'm willing to come down one way or the other because um, it just there's a lot. I don't know. There's a lot there. Do you feel like you've come down one way or the other? I don't think I can in the end. I think I'm leaning that he did, but I think there's just kind of the, one of the brilliant things about this is you could take it either way. Um, and I think there's just enough chaos in the situation and panic in the situation and blame at Bobby thinking that he stole the thing first, uh, that there's, there's, there's too much room for it to have just, just be that flat, that teach is, uh, desperate, really tired and panicked in the moment that Bobby has betrayed him again, because Earlier in the day, he told Bobby not to talk to Ruthie, and he went and talked to Ruthie. So Teach does not right. trust Te- Bobby at all. I don't think that Teach has a lot of affection for Bobby. I think partially yeah. because Bobby's unreliable, like you said, untrustworthy, and that those are not the people that Teach likes to associate with, for whatever reason, because he's fairly unreliable and untrustworthy. Yeah. So, you know. Let's, um, I want to talk, I wonder, Jackson, in your version of the script... Is there a note at the beginning um, f- uh, for you about pieces of dialogue that are contained within parentheses? Uh, yeah, a couple of pages in, but yeah. Yeah, so I want to talk about that feature of Mammoth's playwriting. I, I, I was in a Mammoth play a few years ago. I was in Oleana, and I, you know, I've seen a couple others. I don't remember, and I've read plenty more. I just, don't, I don't remember this from other scripts. That doesn't mean it's not in there. I could just be forgetting. So, if I'm ignorant about it, excuse me. But let's just talk about what happens about this feature in this play, not as a broader feature of Mammoth's writing. So, in in this play, and hopefully, if you're listening along, you may have read it yourself, or you're planning to read it. So you may see again that 
some of the dialogue is contained within parentheses. So for some playwrights, this is actually an indication of unspoken dialogue. Um, so that, you know, playwrights could then be able to provide you with the rest of the sentence that the character's thinking, even though they don't say. That's what I've seen mostly from dialogue contained within parentheses. And it actually, in my playwriting, that's what I tend to use dialogue in parentheses for, is a way to say, this is unspoken, but this is what they're thinking. Um, it's also a way to give the character lines without saying anything. Like, you could put the word no in parentheses, which just means for the actor, you don't actually say no, but you need to communicate no some way. But Mamet, in this play, says that the dialogue that is contained in parentheses indicates a shift of some sort. Maybe more introspectively, maybe thinking about something different than the conversation, um... And that, it happens throughout the play all the time. Even sometimes within lines, they'll have a little bit of little bit of normal dialogue and then some dialogue in parentheses and then a little bit of more dialogue. What do you make of the, that use? How, I mean, as, a, as an audience member just reading it, how did that help you experience the play or not help you? I think that it drew attention in a way that it wouldn't on stage for me as a reader to pay attention to the way people think. And it is certainly a device that is made by the playwright to tell the actors and the director what to do with those sections. But it, it would translate into something that I think would be seamless in that it just makes conversation come across the way conversation comes across. Because we all in the middle, I mean, you listen to this podcast, you know that we have all of these asides all the time where we have something come into our head or a qualification for something. We don't get up. Sometimes we don't get off the main track of the thought that we're talking about, but we take a second to acknowledge this other thought that has occurred into our brain. And I think that's what these parentheses do in this situation is, is it, it, it's a, it's a way for this playwright to communicate through writing to actors and thus through to the audience a very naturalistic form of speaking. Or, yeah, and, and some of it, too, I felt like gave some of the lines more weight. Like, the one that mm, is the first yeah. one that happens, that then he puts the note in there about what is happening, is that they're talking, uh, Don and Bobby are talking about the poker game from the night before. And they're mentioning, oh, this person did so-and-so, this person did such-such-and-such such well, this person did this well. And then in the parentheses, there's a couple lines back and forth of, how did Teach do? Not so well. Oh, you know, a couple of those lines. So, at reading it, you get this you get this immediate sense that the, these lines have a little more weight. And so, you know, then you then you can get get as a reader that uh, they that teach is going to be an important character yet to come um, and that him not doing so well has some special meaning to the characters you can kind of imagine how that would function in your own speech in your life if you were talking like for example my dad uh, you know I talk to my dad and my mom a lot about the TV shows that they're watching my dad and I talk about shows a lot. And so we might be talking about, oh, um, you know, they've been watching this crime show. How was it? Oh, it was good. The writing was really good. This and this and this and that. And then I might say something like, eh, did mom like it? And he'll say, nah, mom didn't like it. And then we'll kind of go back. And I feel like if man writing that, the did mom like it lines might have the parentheses around him because they just sort of indicate a different 
intention. And the intention of did mom like it isn't really just to ask it as part of the conversation, but to say, was it really gory and violent? Did you have a, how, how did you feel watching it with her, etc. So there's some, there's some different weight that the lines have. So as a reader, I thought it was really helpful for catching some of the ways that dialogue shift that you don't always get just reading play scripts. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it within the context of the reader as well. And certainly this play is very much a piece of literature as much as it is a play. This is, it's very, it, it, it reads fine. Once once again, you get into the kind of the rhythm of the words. And so, yeah, I guess I, I would, I would want to take another look at it before I, you know, had like a full, full opinion on it. But I think, yeah, there's all of those asides, they give you extra information outside of the motion of what is actually going on. All the stuff that we learn, a lot of the stuff that we learn about the context for the situation happens within those parentheses. So yeah, I think, I think you're right on, on that. I think it, it translated for me into the way that they talked, but I think it also absolutely applies to the way that it reads. I think too, that this, this go ahead. Sorry. You had, you had a thought there too. I don't have a thought about that. I was going to move on. So if you have one more thought about that, go ahead. No, I was just going to stay with language for a little bit longer. Great. Let, um, let, I agree. Let's talk about language. So I think at the risk of making our theatrically inclined audience members very angry, I think we should tepidly <laughs> dive into mammoth speak a little bit. We talked about it a little bit at the beginning, that kind of quick back and forth, high context, high jargon um, it almost feels vague to the audience member. When an actor plays it, it's clearly not vague because they get to fill it with the intention that's behind it. But the actual words themselves don't convey a lot of meaning sometimes. It's a lot about the subtext. That's sort of that just quick back and forth, back and forth. The th what, what thing? This thing. What thing are you talking about? That thing over there? Just sort of lots of hijacking. So that's that mammoth speak. I don't know. What's a good question? I don't want to just ask you if you like it or not. <laughs> how how does it... Let's talk first about how is it different than normal speech? Because it's not, I don't think, it, it doesn't feel familiar to the ears in terms of the rhythm of a conversation. I think... Hmm. I, I, I wonder about this because it doesn't feel natural to me, but I wonder if it feels natural to somebody. Um, because it is, it is so That's a good point. It is so clearly indicative of something <laughs> like, it's not like he woke up one day and decided to not use the word doesn't in the correct way. Like they have really intentional, uh, re repeats of words right after each other. But when you say them out loud with intention, the sentence makes sense. As a sentence, it doesn't make sense at all. Like a written sentence, uh, if you just take it that way, it doesn't make sense. So I think I think what we're dealing with here is a vernacular for a, a people group that I that I am less familiar with. And I don't know that, I mean, this play was written in 1975. So I wonder where yeah, you would that, find this vernacular anymore. That's a good point. And yeah. it, you know, the other thing, too, is that Mammoth writes for uh, characters that oftentimes are a little rougher. You know, one of the other distinguishing characteristics of Mammoth Speak is the really 
profane language. Yes. Um, if you are a listener who has not yet read the play, uh, if you read it on our recommendation because of you're going to listen to this <laughs> podcast and you weren't prepared yeah. for the language, uh, very sorry about that. It, it's it's pretty rough. You know, the the number of f bombs dropped in this play is high. And, oh yeah. Uh, that's uh, honestly a lot of mammoth just, plays are like that. Not all yeah. of them. Uh, but uh, and this one is is maybe even especially bad. Um, yeah, but it's all over the spectrum too. too. Prof- profanity, swearing, cursing, adjectives, all of it's in there. So yeah, it it is. Uh, there's a lot of that in there, and the characters that he writes that feels authentic for them. So yeah. I mean, you know, those of us, those of you who know Jackson and I know that we, we're both religious, and so we, you know, we we believe certain things about the you know moral standards for the world. But as theater artists, we also believe that theater should be true to the people it's trying to represent. So the language in American Buffalo does not offend me, but it doesn't offend me because I think it is true to the characters that are saying it. It, you know, it would be yes. like having a conversation with someone who's lived the, you know, what I imagine is pretty hard life that these characters have lived and being offended at their language. It just doesn't quite make sense for the context to be offended at it, at least to me personally. But it is in there. And that's true for a lot of Mammoth's characters. So that that's an interesting thought, Jackson, that to kind of bring it all back here that, you know, it doesn't feel familiar to me, but that's because it's not a vernacular that's written about me. Yeah, what what winds up happening, at least I find that I've seen I've seen Oleana, sadly not your production of Oleana, uh, live before, and uh, and and in reading this play, as you get, and I know I've brought it up a couple times now, you get this Shakespeare effect where it begins to wash over you and make sense, like very quickly. I mean, you you recognize early on he almost hits you with the worst content as far as language goes right away at the beginning. Yeah, and oh my gosh, like, the first two, like, the, right, the first two or three pages are pretty dense, not in the way that we think of as dense, like so full of content, but almost dense in the, so maybe they're, maybe a better way to say it'd be they're almost vapid. Yeah. Just because there's just, there's not (laughs) much content in the words. It's so much in the subtext of the actors that it takes you a minute to get acclimated where, to the point where you like got to say, oh, I have to fill in all of this myself. Yep. Mm -hmm. But eventually your mind does. You start filling it in and you start getting the subtext. You start getting like if I know for me, at least I I start to hear what the actor would sound like when I'm reading the play and you start, and if you're in the room, certainly you see and, and hear and kind of feel the way that they're using intonation to deal with this. You have like, it took me two or three times on the scene where there's a couple of scenes where teach like picks up something random in the shop and it's not, it's not obvious what he picks up, but but like those are the sorts of things that you are going to that leave it open for people for actors to put their own flavor on it and i think that's the really special thing about this language is how many doors it leaves open for the production to ascribe different subtext and context for what's going on yeah i i think you're right there is a sense of um, getting acclimated. I really like your uh, your comparison to it being sort of Shakespearean and having to get used to it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I think that that's a good uh, analogy because I I still think that that mammoth speak is is just a different kind of speech 
than regular conversations. I think it's a lot quicker than at least I talk um, or the conversations that I have. I, I think it's a little less context even than some of than most of the conversations that I have with people in my life. But it it really it really leaves a lot of room for an actor to take it on. And I think it, I think it's a deep challenge. You know, the the manic character that I played in Oleana, I had to do a lot of just textual work to understand what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. Just just so that not just so that I could say the words in a way that grammatically made sense, but just like you have to do with Shakespeare, I had to do actually the sentence level work to figure <laughs> yeah. out what nouns were connected with what adjectives, how the sentence order functioned, how Mamet had mixed it up so that I understood the content of what I was trying to get across. And that, I, I loved it as an actor. That is the kind of acting I love to do. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I really love to work with Shakespeare is that the intellectual challenge of having to dive into the language and figure out at the sentence level what each line means, not just content-wise, but grammatically how it works to mean that, is challenging and, in, and invigorating for me. Um, and a lot of... There's just a lot of space for you to take ownership of those characters and the words that they're saying. I absolutely agree. And I think, too, I want to throw this... I know we're getting close to the end here, but I wanted to throw one more potentially 15-minute conversation into the mix. Let's um, do it. <laughs> what do you think about... Why is it that this is different? I'm, I'm thinking... I'm thinking this is a bit of a switch, but I'm... I think these characters all, especially Teach, all are extremely confident in their worldview. And I think that that might be one of the things that are different from real life speech is that in conversation often we're not fully confident of our worldview, not enough to overbearingly drive the other person like teaches or uh, we brought up Oleana, which is another great play that you should read by David Mamet or, but the teach, the teacher, the professor in that one is very confident of his worldview and he is able to have this, this kind of pushing. I, I actually, I want to talk about the same thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to frame it just a little bit different than Lee than you did Jackson, because yeah. um, I, I'm not sure I agree that all of the characters are so confident in their worldview. I actually think I would say in American Buffalo only teach is, he is the one that fills the room with confidence about what he thinks. And in doing so, he really drags the other characters along for the ride. You get a lot of teach just sort of lecturing at Don and Don saying, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, even if it's something that he disagreed with in the in the previous conversation because he kind of gets swayed by teach. And this, I think, is another feature of Mammoth plays. There tends to be some, there is some some sense of the characters being sort of pedantic. They sort of, they have to, you know, teach is the character's name. So uh, let's let's acknowledge the pun. They have to teach other <laughs> characters. Um, that happens in Glengarry Glen, 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 Glen Ross. Um, there is there are there is this group of pe people who work together in an office, and they're teaching each other, especially some of the characters teaching other characters about how business works. And then obviously Oleana is about a teacher and a student, so he's teaching her about 
really about life, but about the content. You don't really learn the content of the class a ton, but uh, but mostly about life and about responsibility. And then Teach is sort of trying to teach Don and Bobby about the tough, gritty world and how you got to kind of punch it out of other people to get what you want. Um, So these characters do have a pedantic sense. Do you think that, that Mamet is making himself... Um, using the pedantic characters to uh, indicate his own worldviews, or is he... I mean, where does that come from in his life or in his writing style, do you think, that there are these sort of teacher characters who drive the opinions of other characters? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I think... I, 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 don't, I don't feel like I'm enough of a mammoth scholar to actually talk about what he's talking about in life, so let me take in his life. So let me take a different approach just a little bit and say, I think what he is, what he winds up doing in both instances that I'm thinking of in my mind is he shows someone who is, uh, you know, in control, pushing and has all the power in the scenario. And then it's taken away from them. And you see the power shift both times. I think that's a really astute observation that it's not so much about the content of what they're teaching, but in, for Mamet, it's about the power dynamics of having someone talk at you. You know, we've talked a little bit, just just a little bit. We'll have to do another Mamet play sometime because there's so much more to say on it, on how Mamet uses language as power. And one of the ways yeah. is that his characters tend to lecture at one another. And it's a way of using language to show your power of it. You know, people who know me know that uh, by fault of my own, I'm sure, I do this to other people. And I know that I do it, (laughs) that I tend to lecture at people. Um, It's just a feature of who I am. And I know it's part of myself and trying to feel like I have some power over the people I'm having conversations with. And for better or for worse, that is what it is. But I, so I sort of, I, I kind of identify with the, <laughs> the instinct of those characters in those plays to, to just turn regular conversation into lecture. There's, yeah. It's so much about, you know, teach is trying to establish his power, his knowledge over Dawn, which he does quite successfully until the end. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a little bit different from the way you would expect, too. It's not, there are very few lines in this play that are more than one line on the page, but almost all of them are teaches. And <laughs> I, I would I would think that, I mean, without going through it, I would think that upwards of 80% of the more than one or two sentence lines are teaches. Yep. And, and certainly the bent of many pages belongs to teach. Like he is high, he uses his language, if not as a finesse tool, as a blunt weapon of just a constant barrage. Um, he, he's, he has a lot of manipulative qualities too that he uses very carefully. So not, not to uh, rob him of any depth of character, but certainly in this, in this play, as opposed to, you know, what you would think of as like a typical, you know, character who just lectures and talks, talks the other one down. He constitutes an endless barrage of small thoughts that endlessly bends the conversation around to the way he wants it to go. Yeah, and and actually, Don does sort of the same thing to Bobby. Yeah, you know, yeah. you think about the kind of the cycle of life. One of the you know one of the jokes or stereotypes about life is, oh, your boss yells at you, and you yell at your family, and your family yells at their pets, and blah blah blah. blah. And the cycle goes on and on and on. And this play kind of illustrates that a little bit, not so much in yelling, but more about the using your knowledge and feeling like you have to teach other people. 
to have power over them. So Teach comes in and feels like he has to use his quote-unquote street smarts, which I think a closer examination reveal he doesn't have that many, <laughs> but he pretends them, um, and he uses that to sort of feel like he has the power and he has to lecture at Dawn all about how life works and the world works and how he's been wronged. And then Dawn turns around and has to do the same thing to Bobby, lecture things about the way Bobby's made mistakes, the way that he needs to own up, the life skills he needs to earn. And you can imagine Bobby taking a younger boy under his <laughs> wing uh, and doing the same thing to him. It's yep. the cycle of power in um, in in lecturing. There's there's some power in imparting your knowledge, even as vapid as it might be. And I think you <laughs> you'll definitely get that impression as you read the play that that both of these these people are using language in various ways of skill and technique to to bring about their way over the other. And it's, it is so interesting to notice. I hadn't thought about that, that you're right on with then Don is also doing it to, to Bobby and that's, and thus the cycle continues. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an astute observation of humankind for Mamet to make. It's a very subtle, but powerful way to put it into his plays um, these sort of ways that characters engage with each other in their knowledge and their feelings of superiority over each other. And it it serves as somewhat of a warning. You know, some, you walk away from the play and you don't want to be teach. He, right. but, uh, you know, at least me, because I know that I have some of the tendencies that teach has, worry that in in some of my relationships, I might be more like a teach. I tend to come in and uh, try to change the conversation to what I want to talk about and then feel like I need to lecture the people that I'm in conversation with about what I want to talk about. Sure. Yeah. It's a cautionary tale. <laughs> American Buffalo. <laughs> don't be like yeah. teach. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I don't know that this is why Mamet named the character this, but let's just realize that the character is named Teach. Yeah. You know, I think his real name is Walt or something, and that comes up a little bit. Yeah. It's, you know, the, his nickname is Teach, i.e. short for teacher. <laughs> so, yep. for, for, you know, David Mammon, if you're out there and I have just really made much too simple of your decision to name Teach Teach, I apologize. But the guy's Or you crack the case wide yeah, open. I mean, the guy's name is Teach. Come on. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think that that is probably uh, long enough to keep our listeners on. I think podcast. so. Uh, we, will, we will have to do another Mammoth play. We've barely yes, scratched indeed. the surface of how... Um, Mamet uses language and power structures in his plays. There's so much to talk about. Obviously, he's one of the great playwrights of even uh, even right now. He is. Yep. Yeah, and that's it's it's a really well layered play. There'll be moments of of you know tension. There'll be moments of fear. There'll be moments of uh, you know serious deep moments. And then there's a lot of comedy. And we didn't even touch on half of the comedy that they do with this heist. There's like a phone number bit, which is to die for. Oh my gosh. And... It's so funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. So please do read the play. Put your filters on if you are a language, if you need to for language, but please read the play. 
And, uh, and then comment to us. We'd we love will, to hear your uh, thoughts on it. We yeah. will be tried to be pretty attentive at monitoring the uh, the social media accounts that you can access this podcast on because we we our hope is that we can have further conversations about these plays. And as always, I think there's some potential that if the comments bear more fruit out, that we may return to a play in a future podcast, um, feeling yeah. like we need to respond to some of the podcasts. If you think we've gotten something really wrong, if you think we have uh, made too much light of something that you really like or don't like about a playwright or a, a character or a scene or whatever, uh, let us know because we are very interested. In, you know, the, why we started this podcast was we wanted to have conversations about plays. And we don't think that the, those conversations need to necessarily end when this podcast is over. Yes, indeed. So please reach out, talk to us on all the social medias, and we will be bringing another play to you next week. Yes. What are we doing next week? We're, we're still deciding. Yeah, we're, we're it, it's week. up in the air. We'll, we'll talk to you about it. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. One of us will be posting what the podcast to come out is um, so that if yep. you are... Uh, if we have avid fans, I don't know if we'll have avid fans or not, but if you're one of them and you're reading along with us, you can know what's coming up so that you can be uh, you know, ready to engage with the podcast and hopefully engage with us in the comments afterwards. Yes, indeed. So, until next week, I am Jackson Nicolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>